the mind is in our whole body so you know this focus is through even when i'm sitting and speaking now and to make a point if i hold up a hand like this, it's how aware i am and what kind of energy can i channelize only through my fingers and through my gaze the connection between these things stage presence in other words awareness of one's own energy no rain hello folks so welcome back to the narain agarwal show today's episode if you are interested to inspire and instigate the warrior within you you got to check this episode out i have with me a theater performer and a calorie piet calorie piet too whatever you say it the one of the most ancient martial arts of the world practitioner he's a runner and he's also a coach who inspires you to inspire the warrior within you and live a warrior mentality so guys without further ado inviting mr orko mukhopadhyay on the show orkoda welcome thank you very good to be here orkoda what do you mean by inspiring the inner warrior T- tell me about that first before we get started and learn about uh, calorie piet sure i'm going to actually turn the question back at you that when you hear the word warrior what what comes to your mind first like give me some adjectives what what comes up i i i sense a uh, going outside your comfort zone okay brilliant um facing the inner demons actually i think okay. there's so much about facing the inner demons and outside you know the inner fears right you know something right. that comes to my mind right okay and uh give me one or two names it could be like you know mythological characters or uh, religious historical present day living people people that you can think of as a warrior wow um i think for some reason bruce lee comes to my mind yes of course <laughs> yeah, no surprises there of course and 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 um and i would say um shivaji shivaji maharaj from maharashtra okay. from india okay all right okay so of course like you know this is my take or my understanding on this idea of the inner warrior but before i get into explaining that you know what if i uh, as an example of a warrior if i spoke about let's say gandhi or uh, the buddha or let's say uh, mirabai wow would you think of them as warriors i mean we normally wouldn't but does this make sense if i say the gandhi was a warrior if i say the buddha was a warrior if i say mirabai who maybe if some of your audience does not know then you choose this um medieval uh devotional poetess and saint woman saint from india so yeah this for your international audience so yeah would we think of her as a warrior for example wow that's mm-hmm. a very intriguing question i've never thought about it and and right off the bat i probably wouldn't think of them as a right warrior. right yes and that's that's you know that's fine but you know um so of course my explorations of this this archetype because that's what it is right so in psychology we have different kinds of archetypes that jung spoke about um and how we can work with those archetypes so we have the king the hero the shaman and so on and so forth uh so, <coughs> excuse me my um interest in this persona this archetype of the warrior that is obviously connected with my practice of martial arts of kalipayat which is 
yeah, you know, it goes back about 12 years now. But uh, it so happened that as I got deeper into that practice, I realized that uh, it is not only about the physical practice, which is fantastic and which gives us a lot, but it's not just about that. It's rather a certain inner dimension which opens up when you practice any martial art, I guess, because if you begin to think about it, you'll see that martial arts in all cultures are deeply connected with the corresponding spiritual or philosophical tradition. I mean, Kung Fu is connected with uh, both pre-Buddhist, like what they call Taoism in China, the whole yin-yang thing, that symbol, and, and a lot else besides. So Tai Chi and Kung Fu are deeply connected with that spiritual tradition. Um, uh, Taekwondo is connected with uh, Korean in traditional spiritual beliefs and uh, Karate, of course, is connected with Shintoism and then Buddhism, of course, in all these countries, Buddhism became huge. So the whole Zen thing. Is so similarly, Kaleri also, and Kaleri is quite possibly the oldest of them all, as you mentioned in your uh, introduction, that it probably is it definitely is the oldest in India, the oldest in South Asia. It probably is the oldest existing martial art of the world. And it has a deep spiritual foundation. As we say, we practitioners, that Kaleri is not just a martial art, it's a way of being. So gradually, my interest turned deeper into that, into this inner aspect of the martial artist's journey. And that a martial artist is a warrior. A warrior is not a soldier. There's a critical difference between the two. A soldier, not to demean in any way, but a soldier is somebody who's part of a kind of a hierarchical system. And it's based on command and control and, you know, power over others, the chain of command, etc. It's not about the individual spiritual journey. There's a lot of honor and glory and all of that, but, but that's, you know, the warrior is somebody different. I mean, we, you know, also mythological characters, we think about Juna, etc., etc. Um, Achilles in the West. The warrior is a much more individualistic figure and values the principles that the warrior embodies. Those are very important in the warrior's journey. So then I started questioning myself that especially in this day and age, when it is not really about fighting physical battles anymore, and it is not about violence. So what is this inner persona of the warrior, the architect of the warrior, what is that about? And so this idea of the warrior within is to connect with and to embody certain fundamental values. And what are those values? Um, truth and to whatever your truth happens to be, but truth and to, to live in the service of that truth, to kind of, you know, uh, strive for meaning, to live a purposeful life. Um, and even though we connect martial arts with fighting and violence, but actually to live a life of, um, of kindness and compassion and service to the greater good. It does not negate the idea of self-compassion, etc. But yes, to be a warrior is in a way to put others before self, to serve <clears throat> a greater you know, common good, so to say. So, and I could be a startup founder, I could be an entrepreneur, and there's nothing wrong with 
my wanting certain things out of that for myself also but still i'm doing that not just to generate you know x amount of revenue and make a 10x exit or something but rather uh am i truly trying to make a difference for others so for me these are so in a way these are leadership values i mean you know i connect the the figure of the leader in organizational context with this image of the warrior um so it all goes back i mean the indian tradition has this beautiful amazing uh, capability of expressing deep truths in a few words so this whole notion of the warrior actually for me just condenses down into truth goodness and beauty which is satyam shivam sundaram so to to embody and to live those values and this beauty is very curious we not like beauty warrior but yes a sense of harmony a sense of joy a sense of yeah joy in in life in the world so that's that's part of the warrior's journey as wow well, so it's not just doing something for the heck of doing it so kalari <clears throat> is a deadly martial art but it's also deeply graceful it's a very beautiful martial art so to it's do something like a dance when i've seen it and that's why it's one of the most intriguing martial arts to me it is not a dance that's the thing it looks like one because it it's like a dance continuous movements and all that but each and everything that, and this is a very common misconception these days there's a different history and i'll share the history of the form also but fact of the matter is that <clears throat> anything and everything about kalari is quite deadly like what looks very sinuous and graceful and fluid but with each and everything kalari is always you know the whole idea is uh, in terms of the body like uh attacking or defending these uh, vital pressure points uh, and so yeah i mean it's a very deadly form wow so let's let's get into kalari uh, and learning about it so yeah. uh, why don't you tell us about the history of kalari i have heard yeah. from some sources that agastya muni one of the saptarishis of india he's the one who invented kalari but there's many streams of thought so why don't yeah. we learn about how did kalari come into being and yeah. into yeah. Uh, the science and the mechanics of kalari yeah absolutely um so first about the name itself the name itself is quite beautiful i mean what does it mean so the word kalari literally means a learning place it's not confined to martial arts any place where you learn is a kalari so school is a kalari in in the north we say pathshala in bangla we also say akhada in hindi correct yeah and akhada is where you could learn wrestling or you could also learn the vedas for example ashala and akhada etc a kalari is a learning space first thing payat the pronunciation in malayalam is like you know a little unique so yeah it's like uh, you could just say payat like that you kind of trip over the last sound a little that literally means the art of battle or the art of war quite literally the art of war like the book sunzu's book so yeah so it literally kalari payat it means the place for practicing uh, learning or practicing the art of war okay and the place where you learn is called a kalari like in akhara so the physical space where we learn in kerala it's, it's from kerala for so those of you who are audience who do not know so kalari originates from what is now the state of kerala which is the southernmost actually is in southwestern most part of india um but being as ancient as it is obviously these geopolitical divisions are much more recent it's just what you know 70 years ago after independence but uh so 
parts of what's the state of Tamil Nadu that you know Kaleri also was native to those areas. Very very old because there's mention of Kaleri in ancient literature from the south of India dating back about two thousand years at least. So in the Tamil language, in ancient Tamil, there's a famous body of uh, literary texts collectively called the Sangam literature, actually. And this, these are poems, stories, anecdotes, etc. Uh, and some of those actually mention Kaleri as well. So very, very old. Uh, kind of rose to prominence. And so the founding, yeah. There are at present there are uh, two principal styles of kalari like kung fu has different styles and you know karate has different styles so it's called northern and southern vadakkan and thekkan respectively this refers just to the north of the kerala region and the south of it it's not like north of india or south of india okay and um, the people who practice northern style of kalari believe that it was created by another sage who is in fact known as a warrior sage parashuraman and uh, who you probably know is like known for his wrath he was very angry and he killed all the kings in the world some 21 times and stuff like that yeah and uh, the south of this kerala Tam- and parts of tamil nadu that region there agastya muni who is yes one of the saptarishis of india he is revered more and the southern style of kalid which is in fact what i now practice. I started with the northern style, but for many years now I've been doing the southern style. So Agastya Muni is uh, revered more in the southern style. So they are the same martial art, but two very distinct schools within that with certain differences. So to quickly kind of, you know, gloss over the story of Kalari. So yeah, it goes back at least uh, 2000 years. Rose to prominence at a time period about 1200 to 1000 years ago, so for about 100 years, this like ongoing pitched was uh, among these three huge southern dynasties, the Cholas who are very well known, then the Chera dynasty, so the name Kerala comes from the Chera kings actually, it was the Chera country and they left their name, so the Chera dynasty, they are mentioned as far back as the Mahabharata. So the, the Cheras are mentioned in the Mahabharata also. And then there was a third dynasty called the Pandyas. And Pandyans, they're kind of like, you know, the deep south of Tamil Nadu, like Madurai was their capital, actually. So all these three dynasties, there were like battles going on in between. And that is the period when Kaleri became the art of the elite warriors. It was never among common soldiers. It was something belonging to elite warrior castes clans. Um, and so that's when it really came to prominence. And then in the Middle Ages, the 15th, 16th centuries, we hear stories about almost like the superheroes of today, the Marvel superheroes and all that. So there is semi, I mean, semi-mythical, semi-legendary um, heroes, especially in the northern part of Kerala, what is called North Malabar, that region, including a few women. So Kerala Society always has, uh, I mean, women have had a more powerful presence there than in many other parts of India. 
Right. It's uh, certain Kerala communities, including the, some of the communities which practice Kalija, are actually matrilineal. The, yes, that's what I've heard. It's matriarchal in nature, right? And the lineage is everywhere. That's true, but it's still matrilineal, as in the property passes to the female line, to the youngest daughter. And therefore, in spite of the patriarchy, in certain communities, uh, women became exceedingly powerful. They actually even practiced polyandry. There are certain communities where women had multiple. It's not even marriage. They called it by a different, it's more like association. I mean, just cohabitation. And they could choose partners. They could, so to say, divorce. And these households would be under the, so to say, the leadership of a matriarch, as in like, you know, a, an old lady who would be like the queen of the realm of that particular household, uh, essentially. A bit like elephant communities. And elephants are so strong in Kerala, so maybe people follow them. But I'm just joking. But it's it's like that. It's like that that um, women were very powerful within certain communities, not all communities. Overall, society was patriarchal. But certain communities, especially the ones that practiced Kalari, were heavily matriarchal. And within Kaleri, Kaleri is a martial art. It's a very powerful martial art. And yet there's this beautiful balance of the masculine and the feminine because what the Kaleri practitioner aims to do other than fighting what he or she, because women have always been doing Kaleri. They've never been barred from doing Kaleri. And so girls across a wide swathe of Kerala society used to learn up to a certain age, up to puberty, etc. After that, not many continued, but still. What the Kaleri warrior tries to do is to awaken Shakti, the feminine principle, the feminine spirit within. Because it also has connections to Tantra practice in Kerala, that is also very strong. They call it Sri Vidya over there. Uh, so awakening the feminine principle of power. So Shakti is worshipped in Kaleri, etc. So this balance of Purusha and Prakriti, masculine and feminine, is very beautifully present in Kaleri, which is why you also see the movements are so graceful and it looks like that. Absolutely. Jumping forward quickly a few centuries. Now what happened as with so many other things is that in the 19th century, early 19th century, uh, when the British were trying to abolish the ruling dynasties of Kerala, like everywhere else in the country, they used all these tactics, doctrine of lapse and this and that and capture the land. Kalari started to be used as a kind of guerrilla tactic against there were one or two specific uh, heroes Kerala who were fighting against the British in this guerrilla way. So they would just materialize out of nowhere and, you know, in the jungles or something maybe, and then like devastate and then melt away again. So the British prohibited the practice of Kalari. Uh, they passed something called the Malabar Weapons or Malabar Ordnance Act or something in the 1820s. And so the point was that you could not carry weapons. So the communities which practice Kalari, just like the samurai in Japan. So the history is very similar to the shogunate in Japan. So the communities are, there were several, but mainly, uh, so this community called the Nair. So you still find people from Kerala with the Nair surname. So the Nairs were the community that primarily practiced Kalari, the, you know, and uh, the Nair men, especially, were allowed to, as well as required to, carry a sword at all times in ages gone by. So 
In the 16th century, we find the first European account of this. There's this Portuguese uh, traveler called Barbosa, Duarte Barbosa, who came to Kerala. That's when the Portuguese started coming, Vasco da Gama, etc. And he writes about the practice of, he calls it boxing, I suppose, like local boxing. But he's talking about Kalaripayat as it was practiced in the 1500s. So they would always go around wearing their sword, just as the samurais would. So these guys were comparable to that. Now the British banned this, carrying of any sorts of weapons, keeping and teaching of weapons, and much of the practice besides. So they killed many people for the old teachers. A teacher in Kalari is either called a Gurukkal, or like in North India, we say Guruji. There they say Gurukkal, or Ashan. That's also a Tamil word. Ashan also means master. Like we say Acharya or something in Sanskrit or Hindi. Ashan is the word, especially in Southern Kalari, we say Ashan. So uh, many of the old Ashans, the Gurukas were killed. Many were shot through the knee, so they couldn't practice or teach anymore. Typical colonial stuff. In Bengal, they chopped off thumbs of the weavers. So just like that, they shot people through the knee, crippled them. Only in the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, it started getting revived. Obviously, as a kind of health and fitness and lifestyle practice, there were some, again, aristocratic young men. In, it never completely stopped. A lot of the old knowledge was lost. But yes, people were practicing teaching and all that. And now it started getting revived. <clears throat> Um, and slowly picked up in popularity post-independence, etc. But the sad thing is, a bit of a shameful thing and from the Indian perspective, is that here is the world's oldest martial art. It's our own heritage. But outside of Kerala or outside of the South, most people haven't even heard about it. Forget knowing how to pronounce it and oh, stuff. Exactly. Whereas even in any small town in North India, you probably find a karate school or a taekwondo or something like that. And nothing... Against that, those are beautiful traditions and great forms. But this is our own. And this is the world's oldest. And it goes back probably to the time of the Mahabharata, you know, for all we know. And because Kalari traces its origin from, some, from an ancient text called the Dhanurveda, which is in turn part of certain Puranas. It's part of something called the Agni Purana supposedly was composed by Parshuram. That was, archery was the noblest of all the weapons, all the arts. Archery, I mean, you look at the Mahabharata, the noblest warriors are the archers, right? Out of all of them, so true. Arjuna and Karna are the noblest because they are the archers. So that was a feature of Indian civilization somehow. Other parts of the world, the sword was the noblest uh, weapon. Here, somehow the bow and arrow was always considered the noblest. But that knowledge was lost from Kalari, 18th, 19th centuries. So now nobody reading. There are people making some efforts to reconstruct or rediscover, mainly by, there are many ancient texts, like little palm leaf manuscripts that some of the Kalari families, like the Gurukals, have with them and stuff. But by and large, it is lost. Kalari also had the chakram, by the way, the discus, yeah, which... In reality, nobody does it like that. That's what we think from images of Krishna. You know, how you uh, throw the chakram is you hold it like this and you throw it like that. So it's supposed to go and strike your target somewhere in the throat, etc. Nobody does it like, like this. Like a ninja star. Yeah. Huh. 
Yeah. yeah, so it's like the ninjas also had a very similar weapon, this uh, tiny little wheel ship. Yes, 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 which they would throw and it would typically strike the person in the throat and kill them instantly, like right here. So the chakram is also, or you do it like that, just like throwing a frisbee. You throw it like this, but it could decapitate a person. Big stuff. It's with something like this and with like razor sharp serrated edges. So you hold it like that and you throw it like this and take off somebody's head. <laughs> it's a martial art. It's, you know, yeah. No, and the thing is in ancient times, it was used in battle, but also there's this very particular feature, but that's supposed to clans because it's not really, when we say kingdoms and all, Kerala itself is a fairly small place. So is it effectively these are clans or tribes. Two tribes have a feud. Yeah, and instead of an all-out battle where there's, you know, large-scale loss of life, each side would choose a champion. It's just like the Bible where you see the David and Goliath story. Each side chooses a champion and it's a battle unto death. And whoever remains alive, his side is considered the winner. So it's a fight unto death. This was called an ankam. Mm -hmm. And... There were specific communities who practiced only for this. So interestingly, these were so-called lower caste communities, untouchables at times. But if they became like these fighters committed to taking part in the ankams for their local chieftain or king, so then these people were called chekavars. And so, yeah, their lives were essentially forfeit. As in at any point of time, you know, uh, they could be called upon and they could die like gladiators. So like everything else, this was hereditary. Um, but at the same time, lots of wealth, lots of honor, etc., etc. So there was this past to Kalri also, so all these weapons. And anyway, so that's like a very, very brief uh, story of uh, Kalri Payat. And the only thing that remains to say is that in spite of all this history of fighting and bloodshed, but what's most important, in my opinion, what is most important about the form is the inner honor code that it carries. So, like the first thing that is even now taught to you when you go to learn Kaleri is that you're never going to use it. Definitely not for yourself. One of I've had more than one teacher. So anyway, one of my teachers put it the more, all of them have said the same thing in different ways. One of them just said that in any situation of conflict, even when you are in the right, you feel you're in the right, you just kind of say, okay, well, you're right, and you get away from that. So it's about uh, conquering your ego. It's about self-restraint, the need to be right. It's about humility. Doesn't mean we you know, bow down to injustice and oppression. This is like for myself, I'm not going to use it. Even when I need to use it to the last extent possible, Kalari is a defensive art. That's what we say. It's a defensive art. So you defend, defend, defend. You try not to hurt the person. You essentially try to get away. All martial arts actually say this, that the best fight is the one that you don't take part in. Simple as so, that. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that a lot of these Eastern martial arts, especially China, yeah. Japan, um, yeah. A lot of these South Asian martial arts have a strong value uh, system and I think that's because of the spiritual grounding it has. So it empowers you 
with humility as opposed yeah. to empower you with your ego it empowers your skill and ability at the same time works on deflating your ego absolutely because absolutely. It, it really makes you a great individual and a great human and asset to others absolutely you know in about everything has a light side and a shadow side so martial arts somehow were always the preserve of certain communities in any culture it's not just here because of the caste system in japan is the same thing only the bushido practiced it and kung fu was only the shaolin monks and so on and so forth common people seldom had access and all this thing of mystery and arcaneness and you know secret knowledge esotericism etc etc i mean the more people have access to martial arts actually there will be less violence in the world because funnily enough it takes away your aggression it's a slow process but i've seen it in my own life because i used to have a lot of anger issues when i was younger you know i mean well when i was your age <laughs> so, so now now that you now that you bring this up by the way i don't think anybody will believe you're 40 because you don't look like it at all so that's a very surprising thing what um So now that you bring this up i wanted to ask you this question you you've practiced kalari for the past 12 years 12 years is a lot it's like a solar cycle um yeah what difference has kalari brought into your life and why do you still continue practicing it hmm hmm it brought in many differences starting from the physical the outermost plane because i was never into any kind of physical practice you from kolkata so you know as a typical uh, bookish the stereotype the typical bookish bengali <laughs> yeah as more into that i had absolutely no connection with my body other than typically playing cricket in the gullies when i was young that's it that <laughs> not too well i was not I was not good at sports or anything i was into quizzing i was into debating everything that's intellectual i was into that and then i got into theater of course that's a whole different story i mean these two journeys are intertwined for me but then that's another journey um and it was because of theater that i discovered kalari as you probably know actors dancers we try to pick up different practices to train ourselves body voice expression etc etc hmm so when i started kalari physically i was not capable of much at all or rather like i didn't think as if i did not have flexibility i did not have stamina and blah, 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 blah. so uh, at a physical level the 40 year old me is far stronger has far more endurance flexibility etc than the 25 or 26 year old me um I started running very seriously a couple of years ago and in a way I credit my kalari practice that in a pretty short span of time I've been able to as an amateur and somewhat older runner of course but I've been able to make decent progress uh, as a runner uh, in a fairly short time and that is because of the um <clears throat> the body awareness and also certain mental because running is a mind game like running kilometer after kilometer is the mind which gives up not the body so the mental control that kalari has given so that's that's one part of it the physical part of it it has also brought a certain kind of awareness not just when i'm doing kalari but 
awareness of my body, a certain embodied awareness, let's just say, like when I'm sitting or the gestures that I'm making, it's not self-consciousness, it's self-awareness, those are two different things. And that has, of course, helped as an actor, it has also helped us. I mean, I do a lot of professional work in the corporate realm, training, coaching, etc. So it has, as a public speaker, it has definitely helped in that because even speaking ultimately is not a cerebral act. It's an embodied act. Hardly any public speaking course actually looks at that aspect, but it's an embodied act. It's about your spine and how you stand and your breath. So uh, it has heightened my stage presence actually by enhancing my awareness of my body and the space around me. So the relationship between the body and the space and holding a certain kind of energy, just how to stand, how to own the space, how to move around in a certain way so that, you know, if you want to, you keep the attention on yourself. And if you don't want to, then you can be very unobtrusive somewhere. Um, that's at, how do I put it? That was That is also mental in a way. Uh, yeah, in a sort of body-mind kind of way. It has definitely increased focus and attention and mindfulness because ultimately Kalari, I keep saying, is a kind of embodied meditation. It's a moving meditation. All martial arts again. Because we do fairly challenging and difficult things with the body. So ultimately what that really demands is a heightened focus of the mind. But the mind is in our whole bodies. So, you know, this focus is through, even when I'm sitting and speaking now, and to make a point, if I hold up a hand like this, it's how aware I am and what kind of energy can I channelize only through my fingers and through my gaze, the connection between these things, stage presence, in other words, awareness of one's own energy. You know, so even when I'm sitting and speaking or standing, taking a training session, in a way I'm doing Kalari, as in the inner energy, the inner principle of Kalari. So when you go, I wouldn't have gone very deep. I still consider myself like, you know, I'll be a lifelong student, still consider myself a beginner. But at a certain point, the practice is not just about the practice. It sounds very mystical and cryptic and all that, but no, the practice is not just about the practice. I mean, if you go deep enough into singing, then there comes a time when you hear and maybe see the sigh in everything. The inner principles are the same, whether it's horse riding or singing Hindustani classical, but the fundamental inner principles of things, I can connect Kalari to startups and to design and whatnot. Just this morning, I was taking an online class and one of my students is a designer and we're talking about how it is kind of like design with the body and so on and so forth. It is because any, any deep enough human practice ultimately goes down to certain basic fundamental principles. You know? So... So like that. Um, so I could be sitting or standing and looking and it's all Kalari. The inner princi principles of being present, of paying attention. So Kalari is not about doing. It's a martial arts, so it's you know, kicking and punching and so much, but it's not about the doing. It's about a, sta a, a perceptive state. It's listening and looking with the body. Kalari has a beautiful saying, uh, the original Mariyalam I'll mispronounce, I'm not going to do that, but the English translation is a state when the body becomes all eyes. When the body becomes all eyes. Wow. 
literally this is like you're a warrior you're fighting at times you may be fighting you know five people so you need to have that like the hunters or the fighters state of the lateral vision everything but metaphorically and the metaphor is what matters metaphorically it means so much more than that it means that communication which is your forte is really about listening communication is not about me it's about the other person presence leadership presence such a you know big thing these days executive presence presence has got not my presence has got nothing to do with me presence is how i make the other person feel wow but chan how the other person feels when i am present is what my presence is right so true what is the quality of energy that i bring into something am i truly listening or you know sometimes even when we're not saying anything but there's so much going on inside our own heads we don't really see we don't really perceive so to that ability at times to be able to quieten the mind and to truly listen to truly watch because that's what acting also is funnily enough i think acting is being on stage or in front of the camera and taking lines and speaking but the truth is acting is a more difficult task of listening because the audience doesn't speak mm. but without speaking it says a lot and can i gauge the pulse of the audience can i truly listen to their silence because that's what really differentiates an ordinary performance from a good one from a great one again whether it's camera or stage stage in a way is live each has its own challenges can i truly receive the silence of the audience because it's a very living silence they're not dead they're sitting there and breathing and giving you their time and attention can you take that attention and respond to that and kalari has helped me tremendously even in terms of you know words because the physical actions demand a lot of precision a lot of precision body mind eye coordination etc and hence this ability to tune the mind so then you can transfer that same capability to when you're speaking also it's again not artificial it's not a put on thing or something it just means awareness you pick and choose your words you're aware of what you're saying as you're saying and the music of your words so i do teach public speaking as well and you know i don't talk about four rules and five strategies and stuff like that it's all about it's an inside out thing it's mindfulness can i speak with mindfulness and can i listen more than speak can i you know stand with compassion towards my audience was in front of me or also like right now the two of us are telling a story i'm primarily telling it to you but we have in mind that you know hundreds of people are going to watch it also and um i can tell my story in a way that it only makes sense to me but then the person seeing this on youtube what value will they so what value am i creating for the other person in that moment so you see that's what that these are the changes which has brought it has actually literally changed my life has it made me super rich or something no that's not what changing one's life is about uh-huh. it's about how in each and every moment how i look at the world and how i relate to it so kalari has given me a different different from what it used to be same my 20s kalari has given me a very 
specific, a very deep frame of looking at the world, of processing my experiences, of responding to them or not responding to them. Wow, wow. It, it really is, uh, it's, it's very powerful when you say that it doesn't, uh, it's not what, that the fact that you got rich, but it gave you a way to relate with and enhance every moment of your life. And that's such a powerful statement because we don't recognize that it's these moments of life that make a great day and a great day a lot of great days make a great week and a lot of great weeks make a great year. Absolutely. And great years make a great life. Absolutely. So, yeah. The fact that you've things... <clears throat> great moments and Kaladi has given you great moments. That's beautiful. Yes. Yes. And in fact, you know, to answer your final question, you asked, why do I continue to practice? First of all, I continue to practice because I still have a lot left to learn. These things are like oceans. It's a, it's a lifelong practice. There's certain weapons, like, you know, I chose not to pick up weapons for a long time. So it's only in the recent past that I've started doing the sword and shield. And that's a different journey altogether. Uh, again, it's not about violence. The day you first stand with a sword and a shield in your hand, something very ancient and primal comes out of you. Not something violent, but there's a very primal, very ancient energy of the warrior, the Huntsman, the ancient warrior inside each one of us. We all carry those DNAs in some form or the other, right? And so it's kind of imprinted in what's called the id, the collective unconscious. And it's not really possible to describe it in words. To stand with the sword in your hand, it doesn't bring out aggression. It brings out something very strange, what you experience, like another presence deeper within you. So I've been doing it only like, you know, in the last couple of years. And then this year, of course, was entirely gone. 2020 was gone altogether for obvious reasons. Other than January, I didn't get to go to Kerala. Otherwise, I go once every two months or something, stay there for 10 days. But why do I practice is connected with this question of changing one's life because change is also not a binary state. It's not a zero and one. Change is an ongoing process. This is something when we very loosely use the words change and transformation these days, we kind of think of it as a switch. But like if I, you know, press the end switch right now, the call is going to end. It's not like that. Change is like a flowing river. It's not a puddle. It goes on and it goes on as long as your life lasts. If we are open to it, we I mean, we are changing each and every moment, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we want to or not. The question is, am I doing so with awareness and intention? So this word intention is amazing, you know, is a very fundamental, important word, which again, a martial arts practice will give you to do things with intention. So I continue to practice because even now, whether I'm teaching or practicing myself and practicing maybe even the first elementary forms, I continue to gain new insights in it. Something different about the body that I hadn't noticed in all these years or about the flow and the connection of one step to another. They may not make any sense to anybody other than me. It may be a very, very tiny uh, technical point, but it matters. You know, it's not about what uh, practical value it has in the world. Again, these practices, especially the martial arts, they're not really about martial arts, Zen calligraphy, something like the tea ceremony in Japan. These are very intentionally, they are quite useless in the sense that it's got no practical use in the world. 
the use is very different. What I learn by suddenly gaining a new insight into a particular culinary move, for example, is ultimately about something about my own mind and my consciousness. And I learn how I learn. The process of learning as a teacher, I'm deeply interested in that. I, I continue to practice because I discover new ways to teach, for example. And teaching is sense-making. It's not about teaching culinary, the technique. It could be design. It could be something else. It's about the penny drop moment in the other person's mind. So how do I teach? How do I, it's communication again. How do I help them see something, make those neural connections happen? Wow. So which is why I continue to practice and to go on. And that is the other thing that uh, Kalari has given that uh, we, we practice to practice, that it's like an ongoing process of evolution of constantly going deeper into the self in relation to the world. Strangely enough that, well, I'm Bengali, so everything brings Tagore to mind, but one of his most famous songs in English translation, it begins with something like that, that um, this process of knowing myself will never end. And the more I get to know myself, the more I know you. So the you he refers to as God, but think of it as the world, as the world spirit, something like that. Martial arts is so much about discipline and initially you approach the discipline in an external way. It's repetition, it's doing by rote. And uh, just to wrap up very quickly, because I think this is powerful again, that mm, as you go on, you discover that Discipline actually is a lot about love, as in we can only be truly disciplined, not like, you know, that's why I'm not talking about the word. These days we said a lot of things about habit and 5A club and all that. See, habit is very mechanistic. It's like I'm doing it for external reasons. Correct. True discipline comes only when there's a deep love for what I'm doing. So discipline is just the visible manifest part wow. of love. Actually, and that's true for anything. Beautiful. It could be true of a person because there are two ends to this. One is that in practices, we think it is only about the craft and not about the emotion at all. That's not true. And that's something Kalri has taught me. And it's not just about doing what you love. It's also about finding ways to love what you do. That's very important. Not I'm lucky that I do somewhat unusual things. And that's a privilege. And I acknowledge that. And not everybody has that privilege. It's perfectly okay to do something with your motivators being putting food on the table. You know, it's, it's a very noble thing to do. Because these days we shame these things a lot. Like, what are you doing if you're not traveling? That, that I think, is a somewhat toxic culture. Like, this thing about the exotic, etc. No. I mean, at least I can speak of my previous generation, people of my father's generation. They did things, I mean, that was the typical middle class India, just to put food on the table. But it is possible to find ways to to find meaning and to love what you do. And that's something Kaleri has taught. On the other hand, when it comes to human relationships, we think it is only about the spontaneity and that if we intentionally practice certain things, um, that's artificial, but it's not. Anything that's deep enough also needs to be practiced. Zen meditation needs to be practiced. So similarly, kindness, Compassion and yes, love in any human sense, not just romantic. 
these are things that ought to be practiced with intention and that doesn't make it any less authentic it makes it more so these are all strangely enough life lessons from practicing a martial art that is amazing because when you were saying all this so many of my questions were covered because i every martial arts teaches some values you covered that uh, you spoke about you know life lessons that you got uh, from the martial arts so thank you so much it's almost uh, magical in a way that you answered so many questions that i had and i had prepared without me uh, putting them forward uh, i'm glad thank you I'm glad now, what, what what i really um, loved is that you said and it was really insightful for me that discipline requires love habit is mechanical it's external and it made me reflect on certain things that i do uh, and i i wouldn't call it a habit uh, certain meditation practices that i do almost religiously every day and it's not a habit but it's it's just i love to do it and it comes out out of certain reverence that yeah. i have in myself uh, that it's good to start from a place of habits nothing wrong with that we need to make a start somewhere and so i'm not decrying i mean these days you know i mean there are a lot of programs which this whole idea that 21 days it takes to form a habit and all that. i'm a little scared from my own journeys because i've been lucky enough to gain slightly deeper insights into certain things we get seduced by these figures and numbers ours is a very label driven age and society so 21 days and 10000 hours it's not about the 21 days and the 10000 hours you could spend 10000 hours practicing the wrong thing i think that also similar to something bruce lee said he said something else that i'm not scared of the man who's practiced 10000 different kicks i'm scared of the man who's practiced one kick 10000 times yes yeah that is a really scary person um but even that we could we could practice the wrong thing 10000 times it's not that it's with what intention with what quality of presence am i practicing it what is the reason for and these are not external this what is the reason is not like some vision and mission statement i have these are almost impossible to express in words there are layers of experience in life which are sadly or thankfully beyond the scope of words you know we understand them with the body we understand them with experience when we go to the himalayas in winter and you know if you see like nanda devi wrapped in snow then yeah we can talk about it and write poetry but the experience is something that lies beyond any words same here we could start from habit formation etc but what i see when i look around in our age is that even spirituality and spirituality sells these days it's a huge industry but even spirituality is something that we're doing in a kind of external way as a formula and with some motive and i would say that if you're practicing spirituality or mindfulness with a motive that is self defeating that sounds weird because i mean how can i be purposeless and all of that it is nevertheless true if you're practicing so because the moment there is a motive you're looking at something which is not in the here and now when i practice kalari in that moment only that moment exists yeah so when i'm just doing something or i'm punching and in that moment there is nothing else my whole attention my whole presence flows through my fist in that moment right so when i practice spirituality or i practice meditation because some social media guru or gurus have 
advocated it and it is supposed to radically enhance your wealth or this or that or whatever. I mean, if it's with an agenda, with an ulterior motive, then we're doing the thing, but we're defeating the purpose. When we give up that agenda, weirdly enough, this is the strange law of the universe. When you give up and you kind of surrender to the process, that word is very, very important. You surrender to the process. Whether it brings something or not, you give up that fight that it has to bring me something. Then strangely enough, things begin to come. It's so true. Even at a, so even at a material level. So now I do leadership programs using Kalari and this mental model of the warrior. And yes, I earn a little bit of money out of it. But that is not the reason why I do it. But not trying to, you know, make a business out of Kalari has in a way had that also. But whether that happens or not is not the point. That is not the point at all. So to, to answer that question, like, you know, meditation, etc., that you're talking about. Yes. So discipline, I mean, so habits are usually like, yeah, we form habits. It's a little more external. It's more societal. Like we are seeing, you know, habits are in relation to society and all that. Discipline, again, think of a lot of Japanese arts, different forms, a tea ceremony or this kintsugi thing that they have where you, uh, that's kintsugi, isn't it? Where you, uh, repair broken things with gold or something. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. So there's this beautiful thing that so if you have a porcelain vase or something and it breaks and you bring it back together by pouring molten gold and so it holds it together. So it's called the beauty of broken things or the beauty of imperfect things. Or so many, or think of, uh, you know, the Japanese swords are called katanas, right? So we've seen Kill Bill, I'm sure, like everybody's seen Kill Bill. So the process of making that is like almost ridiculously complicated and long drawn and the, the absolute devotion that is required to do something like that, or even something simple. There's this great, great book, one of my favorite books, Siddhartha by Erman Hayes. And in the end of that book, Siddhartha's name is the same as the Buddha, but it's not the Buddha, of course, it's just in the time of the Buddha, but he achieves his enlightenment in his own way. But he just becomes a boatman. He doesn't become some great spiritual master with thousands following. He just becomes a boatman, ferrying people across from one end, one shore of the river to the other. Discipline that comes from that inner space is the same as love. So I sometimes say discipline is just love made visible. That's all. That's powerful. Arkuda, thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah. Before we end the podcast and our wonderful conversation for those doing this online, yeah. I had requested you if you could show some demonstrations in some part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, um, in our style of culinary, it begins with a salutation. Like yoga also begins with the sun salutation, many schools of yoga. Similarly, uh, this starts with what we call a Kalari Vandana. And uh, I'll give a little introduction, then I'll do the thing. So this is uh, paying your respect to the Kalari. So as soon as you step into the Kalari, you do that. And it's typically practiced early in the morning, right? And the other thing about traditional Kalaris is that they're always east facing. So the early rays of the sun come into the Kalari. Now, you do this also standing 
in that east-west meridian. And as you shall see, uh, you kind of bow down to the earth and you stretch up to the sky. So it's like you dedicate yourself to the earth and the sky. And what this means for me, and I use this in you know, my leadership sessions also, is first of all, there's this connection with the cardinal directions and with nature that everything we do is grounded in nature. We belong to nature and nature does not belong to us. And if only a lot of things in our modern, so-called modern age, if it could start with this as a given that in whatever we do, whether it's industry or this or that, the sanctity of the earth and the environment is the first given instead of how we can exploit it. If that would be a value system, things would be so different. First point. Second point is that Bowing down to the earth symbolically for me is what are my values? Like, what am I standing on? What is the ground, literally or metaphorically, that I'm standing on? So as a warrior, what are the fundamental values that I embody? Similarly, stretching out to the sun for me is like, what is my purpose? What pulls me, just as the sun is kind of pulling me, so what pulls me? What is my so what is my purpose? And also, what am I aligned with? That east-west alignment. So what am I aligning myself with? So metaphors are not just words. For me, over the years, this salutation itself has become a very deep experiential metaphor. And something I've used with, you know, in with in programs with the CXOs and stuff. And a lot of deep reflections can come out of it. So I'll just show it. Wow. <clears throat> So the first thing is to stand your ground. So we stand like this, left leg in front, neither too far back nor too far forward. You're centered like this. Find your breath. Stand strong and tall, which means that your feet really stand firm upon the ground. Shoulders open, relaxed. And at the same time, it's like you're trying to grow tall through your neck, through your head, like a tree. And then we do this. It's just like the tree position in yoga. And then you go forward. And as I said, you bend to the earth, stretch out to the sky, and then come to yourself. Same with the other side of your body, so symmetry and harmony. And we end, right? Going back to where we started. And then we bow down to the earth again. So that's the salutation, for example. And requires an incredible amount of balance along with, of course, strength. It requires and it gives you that balance also over years of practice. And then again, you learn that the balance is more in the mind than the body. It's in the breath. 
it's the better you can regulate your breath the balance wow. gets better orkuda thank you so much uh, for a wonderful conversation for giving us more insights about awakening the warrior within about kalari payat and about how one can use martial arts in a way to deflate the ego and enhance oneself at the same time lastly you showed us a beautiful demonstration once again thank you so much for a wonderful conversation my pleasure my pleasure